Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If there was one person who knew how to throw a party, an extravagant one, I think King George IV, he was the king of the UK, of Ireland, of Hanover. He was king between January 1820 to June 1830, 200 years ago. This guy would be up there in the list of party throwers. Uh, before he was made king, he hosted a banquet in honor of the Grand Duke Nicholas of Russia, which he chose to host in Brighton, one of his favorite cities. Uh, towns and he paid for the world's best chef at the time to do the catering this involved 127 dishes including a four foot high Turkish mosque made entirely of marzipan now we're doing hospitality after this service for you uh, but there is no marzipan mo uh, mosques or 127 dishes it's tea and coffee and some really tasty pastries but King George IV knew how to make people feel welcome he knew how to celebrate. But why? Why did he go to all this trouble? Now, when you look at his reputation from the history books, he was known for scandal. He was known for financial extravagance. His royal ministers found his behavior selfish. He was unreliable. He was irresponsible. He fell out with his family. He abandoned his wife. So when you look at the guy, sort of weighing up, well, what's the motivation here? Perhaps this banquet was more about himself. Perhaps it was a banquet to impress, to be popular, to be loved. Maybe it was more about King George and what he could get than rather than what he could give. And so in this small account in Luke chapter 5, we had another great banquet. I hope you could see it and hear it as it was being read. There's a great party going on in Luke chapter 5. And its host, Levi, has had a life-changing moment. And he has a great guest of honor, this guy called Jesus. And this guest of honor has more to give people than just food and drink. And that's what we're going to look at in the next sort of 20 minutes or so together. The, the three gospel writers, Luke, Mark, and Matthew, and Matthew is the Levi mentioned here. He's that guy called Levi. They all include this dinner party in their accounts because clearly it shows something life-changing about Jesus and what he's come to do, that he is a generous savior who brings eternal life to unlikely people. He's on a rescue mission, a savior, bringing eternal life to unlikely people. And this is just the first point I want us to sort of look at the passage and grapple with. Jesus loves the unlikely. The story's quite a simple one. My sermon already is probably longer than it takes to read about the encounter. Jesus meets a guy called Levi. They have a party, but obviously there's more going on than that. We're told that Levi is a tax collector, and Jesus meets him at his workplace in his tax collector's booth. Now, tax collectors at that time were known for two things in Jesus' culture. They were known for extortion. They used their power to cheat people out of their wages by adding extra charges 
um, and keeping that cash for themselves. They were also known for collusion with the Roman Empire. In the first century, Israel was under occupation by the Roman Empire. The Jewish nation was not free, and the Romans were oppressive and at times very brutal. So the Romans would tax all nations under their control, and tax collectors, who were Israelites, would collect the money from their own people and give it to the Roman authorities. So you could see that tax collectors were seen as corrupt traitors. Even John the Baptist, one of Jesus' closest friends, rebukes them, telling them not to collect more than they're authorized. They were pariahs. What would be a shocking parallel today? Imagine Ukrainian people living in Kyiv, but collaborating with Putin's army. It's unthinkable, isn't it? A person found to be uh, doing that would be, would be hated. And in Jesus' day, tax collectors were hated. So a job like that would certainly attract a certain type of person, wouldn't it? Someone maybe driven by greed, someone you probably couldn't trust, someone looking after themselves, making sure number one is looked after. Levi was probably a very wealthy man with a very shady character. And in contrast, there's Jesus. Well, he's a traveling Jewish preacher and healer, and his popularity at this point in time in Luke's account is growing. He's done some miracles, he's been teaching, uh, we've been told he's been busy at work um, sharing God's word, he's been growing a close team of followers, of disciples, he's provided a miraculous catch of fish, he's healed a man of a serious skin disease, and a paralyzed man has crucially been forgiven of his sins, but then Jesus makes him walk as a sign that his sins are forgiven. Who is this guy? Put simply, Jesus was doing what only God could do. And some people were amazed and praised God, but other people, like the Pharisees we're told about here and the teachers of the law, who pop up at the party again, were not so happy. You see, these folk were very devout religious people. To be quite honest, if I was in the first century and a uh, a temple goer, synagogue goer, you know, being a Pharisee would look good. It's the sort of role I would adopt, probably, naturally. They were devout religious people. They strictly followed the biblical law, but they were hypocrites. That's the problem. They were angry at Jesus because he seemed to be breaking God-given boundaries, even saying he can forgive sin. That's a direct claim to be God. What on earth are you saying, man? This is outrageous. Who do you think you are? For them, that is blasphemy. Now, Jesus and Levi are not the sort of people you'd expect to be hanging out with each other. A bit like uh, seeing Pep Guardiola and Sir Alex Ferguson in a Manchester bar together, just uh, shooting the breeze and having a drink and chilling out and talking football tactics. It's not going to happen. <laughs> a traveling preacher and tax collector just don't mix. And that's... The first shock. Did you see it? Jesus walks up to Levi, and what does he say to him? Follow me. Jesus wants Levi. In other words, he's saying, I want you to be with me in my circle. Levi, I'm choosing you. It's the reverse of being the last kid in the playground to be picked for the team, isn't it? I wonder what Levi's reaction would have been. We're not told, but it's probably a mix of confusion and shock, isn't it? What do you mean? You, you want me? 
You want me to follow you? Levi, who must have felt pretty isolated, pretty unwanted by others, is now faced with this guy, Jesus, inviting him to be part of his community. But what happens next is the second shock. This dodgy tax collector turned his back on his job, on his wealth, on his security, on his identity, and followed Jesus. It's an encounter that has changed him. And again, we're left puzzling. Why has he done that? You know, wouldn't it be good if we just had a few extra footnotes or, or, or notes down here that sort of really unpack that for us? But when we read it in context, there's been some stuff going on that's going to have caught his attention. Was it the news of the miraculous massive catch of fish? You see, that day would have been a very good day for him because he would have raked it in in taxes as well, taxing the fishermen. Or that Jesus forgives people's sins. Clearly, he has got a long list, probably, starting to rack up of problems that are cutting him off from God and from others. Could he forgive my sin? Clearly, God was at work melting this tax collector's heart, this hard, sinful heart. And when Jesus calls him to follow him, Jesus is doing something radical, you see. He is showing hospitality to Levi. He is reaching out to this lost and empty man and calling him to be part of something bigger, something that makes sense of life. Come and join me. And it's clear that Jesus' invitation has a big impact on Levi because what does he do? He leaves everything, and then next thing we know, verse 29, he's throwing this massive party, a great banquet for Jesus at his house. You see, Jesus' gracious love has turned this corrupt tax man into a generous host. And this wasn't a celebration like King George IV to impress or show off, but to honor Jesus. Just think of the special meals you've shared with people. Call them to mind now. I'm sure there'll be some being had this afternoon with family and friends, celebrating what's happened here. Birthdays, weddings, meals out with friends, having people over for a barbecue. They're all special, aren't they? They're memories that are emotive. Your emotions should trigger when you think of those times and what you ate and where you were. They come flooding back. And they don't have to be extravagant either, do they? I remember the generous hospitality of a family in Colombia, and the mother welcomed me in, and a few of the, the team that were with me, into one, their one-room home in the middle of one of the largest slums in Bogota. I spoke next to no Spanish, but they showed me friendship. They offered me a small cup of coffee, Tinto. It's always on the go. They have it brewing in these big vats on, on the stove. And I tell you, it was one of the strongest coffees I've ever had and sweetest. It was absolutely delicious. But you know what? I was humbled and blessed by their generosity. Best cup of coffee in the world. There's something special about a shared meal. There's something significant about the investment of time, that preparation, the inviting others, the conversation you have. We see that meals can be special, and meals were special in Middle Eastern culture, as they remain today. To eat a meal with someone was to say, we're friends. We're in unity together, even intimacy. To invite someone to a meal and to accept the invite represented a real relationship. Meals were used as a means of reconciliation, of two people falling out and then building bridges by eating together. 
The meal table was a place where social boundaries and hierarchies were also maintained and on show. So if Levi's going to host a meal, who do you think he's going to invite? Who would you expect there? Surely it's going to be other tax collectors and the socially suspect, the, the dodgy friends. Certainly those who are least likely to be interested in God would be at that meal. As I was reading this, I was provoked, as I usually am, about Star Wars things flying around my head. And Obi-Wan's description of Mos Eisley's spaceport might well have applied to Levi's party. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Jesus goes straight in. There we go, a gratuitous Star Wars quote. But there's Jesus. He's right in the thick of it. Sitting with Levi and those other unscrupulous characters enjoying their company. He's probably tucking into a bit of lamb, a bit of hummus, a cup of wine in one hand. This wasn't just a meal, it was a statement. And this picture, this meal, is something that Jesus develops through his ministry. He says his kingdom is a feast. Heaven is like an eternal banquet where everyone is welcome, where those divides are broken down, where there's joy, where there's warmth, and it never ends. And God is right at the heart of it. He is the host. This meal with Levi shows that Jesus loves the most unlikely of people, and Jesus still loves and invites unlikely people today, even people like you and me. And clearly Levi wasn't worried what people might have thought about him. His joy needed to be shared. His priority was getting as many people together to meet Jesus. Much like Anna and Katie and Kent and Gabby and Amy, they want their close friends and family to hear and experience why they are getting baptized. Why they're making this commitment to this God that we can't see, but who's there. They want to share their joy at following Jesus. And that is something for the rest of their lives. And they want in some way to help us meet him. But it's easy to see how quickly the the Pharisees, those super religious people, get offended. They miss the point. They were shocked that Jesus is eating and drinking with these sinners. Notice it's the religious people who use that label, not Jesus. They give that label first. The Pharisees thought a prophet or a teacher like Jesus would surely avoid anything that could make them unclean before God. Surely a godly person would know who they're coming into contact with and sort of steer away, exit right, quick. Yes, the Pharisees believed that God's kingdom would be a party, but they didn't like the guest list. Levi and his friends simply didn't measure up to the standards they had, but this is where Jesus totally challenges their wrong thinking and cold-hearted attitude. And that's the second point we see in this passage. Jesus is the one who loves the unlikely, and he is the great doctor. Look at verse 31 in that passage in the booklet. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus isn't rejecting the truth of God's law or his holiness. He's not saying, yeah, yeah, let's move on from sin. We just need to revamp that. I've got, you know, uh, the, the second version that's now out, and we don't have to deal with sin anymore. That, that was all old and rubbish. No, purity really does matter. Sin is serious. Holiness counts. But Jesus is the one 
who will fulfill that law perfectly. He is telling the cynical religious people, I am the solution. Jesus' purity, his holiness, is actually a contagious gift. And I love the way the Bible teacher and uh, and Pastor Tim Chester explains Jesus' answer. He writes, the Pharisees are asking Jesus to behave like a doctor who avoids sick people. Um, Gabby, how well is that going to go down on your training rounds? (laughs) Not very. Such a doctor clearly can do their work. Jesus, the Savior, can't do his work unless he's with broken, sinful people. Levi saw that he was a sick person in need of Jesus' gift of forgiveness. The religious people thought they were healthy and righteous, but their arrogance, their judgmentalism, their lack of mercy towards Levi and his friends showed they are just as sick and sinful as everyone else. So you can be a sinner by being a very moralistic religious person and a sinner by being very immoral and doing things the way you want. Both are telling God, actually, I don't need you. Jesus eyes both groups as sinners, both in need of his forgiveness and love. And the sad thing is, many people just don't want to see they are sick, that they're in need of this life-changing gift that Jesus gives. And when you read the stories of each person getting baptized today, you'll see that they, like Levi, came to see they were sick. It's a moment of self-realization. It's a moment of brokenness. All of us who follow Christ have had that. A realization we can't do it on our own. We were never meant to. It's not in our strength. I'm not number one. That there's a point where we see Jesus as the ultimate doctor. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us are uncomfortable with our self-righteousness, aren't we? Looking down our noses at others, it makes us feel better about ourselves. And Christians rightly can be accused of this first and foremost. I get that. And rightly so, we should be accused of it. We are hypocrites. And that's why we need a saviour. But an intensely moral atheist can also struggle with the same problem. It's a problem everyone shares. I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. We can see very clearly the problems in other people, but are blind to our own faults. And deep down, deep down, we're afraid, aren't we, of being rejected. So we try to prove ourselves. We try to go to different lengths to achieve that. We, we project our best selves in the way we talk about how our weeks have been or what we portray of ourselves online. But it also means we keep things hidden. What do you not want to be revealed about yourself? What would you hate to have revealed to others from fear of rejection? What moments from your life, if they were projected on the screen, would mortify you? The shame, the exposure, the fear, the guilt, the regret of our self-centered actions, our attitudes, these words that leave us running for cover. Gunther Grass was the Nobel Prize winning German novelist and poet. He spent much of his career criticizing Germany's failure to deal with its um, Nazi past. And in 2006, he published his autobiography nine years before he died. It was called Peeling the Onion. He made a shocking admission in that book that he, had be, that he had hidden for 60 years. He admitted he was part of the Nazi SS during the war. 
And many people, including Christopher Hitchens, denounced him as a fraud and a hypocrite. And so why did Gunter Grass choose to reveal this truth after many decades of cover? He said this in an interview, it had to come out. I had a recurrent sense of shame, but the burden remained. No one could alleviate it. It will stain me forever. It will stain me forever. All of us have done and said and thought things that stain us too. We may not have gone to extremes like that, but our words, our decisions, our actions have hurt others. They're destructive. It's what the Bible calls sin. And when we hear that word, sin, we're tempted to think of all the things that are like naughty and nice in life, just a bit of harmless fun. They don't really matter. But when Jesus spoke of sin, he was describing a deep-rooted problem of our hearts, an instinct to do things our way and not God's. Blaise Pascal put it like this, you see both the glory and the garbage in humanity. You see, we're capable of great acts of love, of kindness, of generosity and creativity, but also immense destructive selfishness. Choosing to conceal these things is a crushing burden. That's why Jesus' offer of forgiveness is so liberating. That forgiveness that comes with freedom from guilt and shame. But it's a, a costly freedom. I think one of the highlights this week, the wonderful good news story, was that of Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe, reunited with her husband Richard and her daughter Gabriella, and of Mr. Ashuri, re reunited with his family as well. The photos were on all the front pages of the papers and online, but it came at a cost, the emotional, physical cost of trauma that the families have had to carry and bear enduring this injustice over so many years. And then there's the cost of a, a parallel deal, 300 million, a payment that the British government did which coincided with their freedom. Our ultimate freedom from our sin, from that guilt, from that burden, came through Jesus' death on a Roman cross. He chose to lose his freedom so that we might find it. By his death, he took upon himself all the guilt, the shame, the judgment of our sins so that we could be freed from it. Isn't it amazing that God knows us and he sees all of us? He sees everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. But what he does in Jesus is offer us a new start. He sees it and says, come. Forgiveness for our sin against God. Forgiveness for our sin against others an unbreakable life that death cannot destroy. Jesus loves the most unlikely of people, people like Levi, even very religious, hypocritical people like the Pharisees, like myself, even decent people like you. He offers his forgiveness, his eternal life to all, because we are all in desperate need of it. And that is worth celebrating. That is worth throwing a party every week about. One that beats King George IV and no marzipan. And, and that is why the most loving thing to do when you found that gift is to share it with those you most care about and love, just as we're doing today. 
Now, if you're interested in looking further into Jesus's gift of life here at Grace Church, we're going to be running an online course called Christianity Explored over the next few weeks. If you're interested in those details, it's not asking you to sign up or anything like that, just to get a bit of info, you can email ask at gracechurchmanchester.net for a few more details and I'll be in touch with you. But wherever you are, on that spectrum of belief, unbelief, can I encourage you to take seriously Jesus' offer of forgiveness? Of new life with God? Will you consider saying yes to his invite to follow him? You know, it could even start today just with a simple prayer of going, okay, Lord, I'll go your way. Show me that forgiveness. Show me that freedom. Help me live your way. And if you'd like to say that simple prayer or pray with someone after, don't leave here without doing that. Come and chat with me. You can find some other people who'd be more than willing uh, to pray as well. But I would consider that a privilege if you wanted to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who simply says, follow me. You bring an invitation of love and forgiveness and freedom to all in need. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you continue working in our hearts to show us how we can live life with you in freedom and in joy during hardships and in good times. For your glory. Amen.